Welcome to The Course Reports, your real deal inside look into professional golf venues around the world. This week, we're going to talk to Herb Stevens of Grassroots Weather, a renowned meteorologist who also did some time as a PGA Tour caddy. I'm Curtis Tyrell, certified golf course superintendent, master greenkeeper. I'm here to bring you the smooth and true facts. It's time to get on the green. It's time for the course reports. This episode is brought to you by Canon Golf. Asset assurance, elevated experience. Find it at canongolf.com. Well, I couldn't be more excited about episode 16 of the course reports. I have a very good friend and colleague with us here today, founder and sole operator of Grassroots Weather, among many other things related to golf and unrelated to golf too, Mr. Herb Stevens. Herb, welcome to the course reports. Thank you very much, Curtis. And it is good to speak to a friend and uh, I'm very excited about what you've uh, done with this step in your career. I think the the stuff that you've produced thus far that I've seen, I've seen uh, four or five of the videos and uh, listened to a couple of the uh, the, the blog uh, recordings such as this one. Uh, you're doing a fantastic job. You have fascinating insight that you can add to the questioning of superintendents and, and uh, their assistants. And uh, I've learned a lot from the, what you've done and I appreciate it. Well, that means a lot, Herb. I really, considering that's uh, how you've made your career uh it means a lot to hear you say that i'm excited about it too you know the goal is to try to reach the general golfing public and give them information that they just won't get on the broadcast and that's what that's what we're trying to do you know (laughs) what can i say well you know Um, the guys i play with when, when i dare step out of my lane that is the weather and go into the agronomy with the things i've learned along the way from folks like you there's an appetite for it among avid golfers and, and somewhat casual golfers as well. But I certainly think uh, you are in the, the process of carving out a niche. And uh, I wish you well, and I think you're going to succeed. I really do. I think there is an audience out there sufficiently large with a sufficient appetite so you can make a go of this. Well, I appreciate that. And I tell you, I've been learning from you. You know, you've been a friend. Well, we've been working together. I don't know how long uh, we've been working together or you've been working, uh, uh, servicing some of the clubs that I was at, but it's been a while now. Yeah, I've been um, doing this about, uh, I think this is my 16th season with grassroots okay. weather. Yeah, I know. We started talking um, when I was in Connecticut in mm-hmm. 2005, I think it was. Yep, yep. I was so, a couple years in then, and that was just down the road from where I live. And, um, you know, you were a natural target for a guy trying to grow a business. Yeah, right. It was right around the corner. Yeah, but you know, um, I want to get to the grassroots weather stuff, but I definitely want to start with your career as a broadcaster and the skiing weatherman and just a little bit about your background. Yeah, I, you know, Curtis, I, I've said this to a lot of friends and colleagues and people that uh, for some reason or another are interested in how I got to this point in my life, but I have been abundantly blessed with the experiences I've had in my life that have combined things that I love to do with my chosen profession and chosen science, and that's meteorology. You know, when I was uh, probably 10 years old, uh, I decided I wanted to be a meteorologist. And and part of the reason why I got involved in it at such a young age is that uh, growing up here in Rhode Island in 1960, Hurricane Donna, 
came up the eastern seaboard, and the eye of the hurricane actually came right over our house. We lived uh, very close to Narragansett Bay, which kind of bisects Rhode Island. <clears throat> and uh, if you live through the eye of a hurricane and you see the trees all around your house getting knocked down in one direction, and then half an hour later they're getting knocked down in another direction, it leaves uh, an impression. And I was fascinated catches by your what attention. I, yeah, it catches your attention. <laughs> and uh, I was fascinated from that day on. And uh, by the time I was 10 or 11, uh, I had decided that's what I wanted to do. And the odd thing is, uh, I've met hundreds of meteorologists through the years, and I don't think I've met one that did not know by the time they were 10 or 11 years old that that's what they wanted to do. Wow. That's, you know, that's uncommon in, very, in general, wouldn't you say? Very yeah, uncommon. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you just somehow you just get smitten by it. And, you know, the beauty of it is when you're a kid, you don't have to carry around a book. Uh, these days, you don't have to carry around a computer. All you got to do is open your eyes and observe. And uh, you're, you're constantly learning things by just watching the sky and the trees and the animals. And they're all related, uh, you know, with, with weather. And uh, uh, it's, it's just a natural thing that catches some people at a tender age. And I was one of those people. So, you know, I, that's what I made up my mind to do. And I, I went to college at Penn State uh, because they had the, the best meteorology department uh, in the country at the time. Uh, I'm not as thrilled about the direction of the program now as it relates to uh, uh, what they're teaching kids um, regarding the climate. Uh, I think they're much too narrow of focus, shall we say, in, in only considering one solution to the question. Uh, but at the time, Penn State was the place to go for meteorology. But by the time I got to college, I had already spent three summers uh, in high school as a PGA tour caddy. And I was right. kind of enamored of that lifestyle, the excitement of being inside the ropes and, and seeing the greatest players in the world. And I made a bunch of, of, of friends, guys who were uh, doing likewise. They were in college and it was their summer job to go out on tour. And um, I, I did that my four years in college. And when I graduated from Penn State, had my degree in meteorology, uh, I did not go after a television job because I wanted to be a television meteorologist. I should uh, point that out. And I did a little bit of television on the uh, PBS affiliate uh, at Penn State when I was in school. So I had some experience and I loved it and I wanted to do it. But there was this other voice talking to me saying, hey, why don't you try the PGA Tour for one full year? So when you when you do that, you'll be able to go to the places where you saw your friends who some of my friends went to the tour out of high school. They didn't go to college. And I would sit there at Penn State and listening to the sleet and the rain and beating off the, the big windows of the television lounge in my dormitory. And my friends would be wandering around Wailai in Hawaii, Pebble Beach in California, Torrey Pines, Riviera, Doral, Bay Hill. I mean, you know, I'm sitting there freezing yeah. and they're in shorts. And not actually, they weren't in shorts, but they were in short sleeve shirts and having a great time. Right. So I decided to do it for so, one year because I wanted to see the country and experience those golf courses. All right, so you got your taste at caddying on the PGA Tour while you were in school studying to be a meteorologist. Uh, before that, actually. Uh, I did it in high okay. school because, uh, you know, I was a local caddy, and I caddied uh, for a woman who was a very good amateur who played with the likes of uh, Jane Blaylock and, and Pat Bradley in, in New England here. And her husband was a local club pro, and 
the club, Agawam Hunt Club in East Providence, Rhode Island, was hosting the Rhode Island Open. And this is 19, I think it was 68, it's no later than 69. And uh, they needed caddies. So at the time, Westchester was the nearest uh, tour event on the calendar to the Rhode Island Open. And guys that didn't succeed in Monday qualifying would then come up and play the two-day Rhode Island Open. Well, I caddied for a guy in that Rhode Island Open uh, who was a fringe player on the tour. His name was Ben Kern, and he was a Canadian gentleman from Toronto. And we had Ben and his wife Jan over for dinner a couple of nights that week. My family did. And fed them lobsters and clams and all of you know the New England stuff. And, <laughs> yeah, and right. at the end of the week, uh, Ben Kern and his wife asked my mother and my grandmother, uh, "Can we steal your son for the next five or six weeks?" And and I'm 15 <laughs> years old. I said, "Yeah, baby, let's go." So, yeah. so half the time I slept in Ben's car, uh, and he was from New Mexico State, and I remember it. It was a Chevrolet that was uh, part of a sponsorship deal he had with a Chevrolet dealer in Gallup, New Mexico. I got to know that car very intimately because half the time I slept in the back seat. If I made a little money, I got a hotel room. I loved it. Absolutely loved wow. it. And I caddied five weeks that first summer and expanded it from there and did it as my summer job. And then when I got out of college, as I said, I, the, the, the goal was to do it for one year. And shortly after I got out of college, I hooked up with Larry Nelson, and one year turned into five real quickly. Man, that that is incredible. I mean, just to think that your parents were okay with it at age fifteen. I mean, this is this is obviously long before the communication tools of today and cell phones and such. They let you go for five weeks at age fifteen, and you're sleeping in the backseat of a car in New Mexico. Uh, you know, if if parents did that in in today's <laughs> society, they'd be behind bars. So. Right. <laughs> oh, man. But, uh, you know, fortunately for you, I mean, what an experience at a young age. It probably opened your eyes to a lot of things and, and probably in a lot of ways prepared you for um, ba- basically being mature enough to go on and get your degree and do the things that you needed to do. I mean, that's some real life experience. I, I learned a lot and I learned it early. And, um, you know, one of the things that, that was near and dear to my heart uh, as I look back on that experience is I used to hang around with black guys in late the late sixties and early seventies when, you know, there, that wasn't as common an occurrence. And I made great friends among black caddies. And I, uh, I developed a, a sense of fairness as it relates to diversity that, uh, um, you know, I, I've cherished uh, th- those guys were great guys. Uh, Walter Montgomery and Herman Mitchell and golf ball, Dolphus Hull and, and uh, Mama Bill. Uh, I mean, they, they got the names, the characters, playing cards with them. Uh, that was a big part of my education as a young man on the tour, playing with those guys. Just being with them, caddying with them, playing cards with them, playing golf with them. Herman Mitchell, who a lot of golf fans remember, was Lee Trevino's caddy. Uh, for the latter stages of, of Herman's career. He started with Miller Barber and had a lot of success with him. But Herman Mitchell, despite his girth, he, he weighed in at about 350 pounds, was a hell of a player. You know, he, he, he won the caddy tournament at Enjoy Country Club, Enjoy Golf Club in Endicott, New York, one year. Uh, shot one under par. The day after the tournament ended, same, same tee marker, same hole location, same primary rough at about four inches, and Herman shot 71. Yeah, so he was oh, a real player oh, yeah, for sure. Oh, yeah, and a real character. I mean, I've got 
a big boy and a and a big player too. Yeah, and and <laughs> I, I could tell you Herman Mitchell stories that would make your ribs hurt from laughing. He was so funny, and so irreverent. And uh, you know, the one one time we're playing we're playing touch football in the parking lot at Tuckaway uh, Country Club in Milwaukee for the old GMO Greater Milwaukee Open. And Herman has finished his day, and he's walking across the parking lot, the grass parking lot. And we said, Herman, come on, let's play some ball. And Herman just looks over at us. He says, hey, you white boys didn't let me play no ball in Little Rock, Arkansas in 1953. I ain't playing with you now. <laughs> we, oh, just, we just broke a rib laughing so hard. Uh, he, he was a wonderful, oh, wonderful man, man and uh, had, a, as I say, a very, uh, very – irreverent and uh, pointed sense of humor, but uh, he, he was beloved by the other caddies. Man, that's awesome. Well, so so you get a taste of the caddy life as a, as a real youngster, but yet you hold to your, to your very first passion and dream of becoming a meteorologist. You get through the program at Penn State and you say, I got to go out there and I got to do this full time. I haven't haven't had enough yet. And, it, and one year turned into five and you hook up with Larry Nelson and you spend five years on tour with him. I mean, um, the stories obviously, you know, must be endless. The experiences that that you uh, gain through that, but uh, you know, what uh, what stands out to you as as some of the bigger highlights during that period with Larry? Well, first and foremost, Curtis, Larry Nelson is without question the finest man I've ever known. Um, he is a deeply uh, devoted Christian man. Uh, he got me back on track with my faith in the 20, in, when I was in my 20s. Uh, and he's not a salesman. He's more like Johnny Appleseed when it comes to his, his faith. Uh, he's, he's a, a diplomat. And uh, there's a big difference. But uh, he, he walks the walk. Uh, and if you ask him, he will talk the talk. But he is the finest man that I have ever known. Now, in terms of his playing ability, that, the, the record speaks for itself. You can find his locker in the golf World Golf Hall of Fame in St. Augustine between Byron Nelson's and Jack Nicholas's, and that's pretty heady company. Uh, sure is. And, wow. and I, I had so many great times with him. Uh, when I first started working for him, he was a Monday qualifier back when that stuff existed, and he won his first tournament in 1979. Uh, he became exempt in the top 60 uh, after the 1976 season, I believe it was long time ago you know my memory's not what it used to be but uh but he won at the at uh, Inverary in Florida uh the Jackie Gleason Inverary Classic was his first win and I was there the for Jackie the Gleason yes oh yeah as as in Buford T Justice yeah. Jackie Gleason that Jackie Gleason he was uh, the celebrity <laughs> host of a PGA Tour event for many years and uh I got to meet the great one as he was known um and, and uh I had a, we had a, the following year in 1980, uh, we played in the Pro-Am with uh, Jackie Gleason and uh, uh, Gerald Ford, who was, wow. who was, be, the people were trying to get him to go and run for office. It was up against Ronald Reagan. So, you know, there was a lot of headwind as far as that's concerned. But uh, uh, I've got a story and I can't tell it on the air concerning the former <laughs> president and uh, his vocabulary. If he hit a bad shot, I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> but the football player in him came out when he hit a bad shot on the golf course. And that's, I'll, I'll just be diplomatic. About yeah. It. But he was a wonderful guy. And to have the experience to spend time with a, 
with a former president on the golf course was exciting. But, you know, Larry really hit his stride in 1979. He was the second leading money winner to Tom Watson. And he won a grand total of $283,000 to be number two. Uh, wow. But, How things have changed. Yeah. But, you know, he made the Ryder Cup team that year. And that was the first year that uh, the European side was not just comprised of, of guys from the, from the U.K., so they reached out to continental guys because they wanted to get their hands on Seve Ballesteros and get him on the team. And it just the way the pairings worked out, uh, when Larry played in the uh, Ryder Cup in 79, uh, Lanny Watkins was his partner for all four of the team matches. He, Larry and, and Lanny played in all five. And then in the singles, Larry drew Seve. Now, in, in the team matches, three of the four matches um, – Lanny and Larry played against Seve and his partner, Antonio Garrido, who was also from Spain. And then Larry got Seve in the singles, and Larry didn't lose a match. And he beat Seve 3-2 and two in the singles. And that was the most exciting week that I had as a caddy. Because even wow. though the Ryder Cup didn't have the, uh, the atmosphere that it does now, there was certainly a heightened level of, of excitement when Seve came on board in 79. And Larry, and La- with Lanny's help, obviously, they just slapped them around. <laughs> and not many people can say that in the Ryder Cup. And, you know, that record of 5-0 and that Larry uh, created that week lasted until last year when uh, Frances- Francesco Molinari went 5-0 and for the Euros. Nobody had ever done it before besides Larry. Wow. So that, wow. that was my most exciting week. He, he won several times with me. Uh, but the Ryder Cup, that was the piece de resistance as far as I was concerned. And then I quit after the 1980 season because Larry and I agreed if I was going to become a television meteorologist, I better get off the tour and, and go get down to business, which is what I did. So, yeah, that was going to be my next question. So, you know, you have this fantastic year, 1979. Larry's obviously uh, peaking. And in 1980, you I caddied, I caddied so- in 80. And Larry, okay. and Larry was 11th on the money list, and it was at the uh, tail end of the 80 season that we decided that uh, it was best that I pursue my chosen career. All right. And so off you went into broadcasting the weather. That's where I went. I, uh, I, I My first job was doing mornings on the NBC affiliate here in, in Providence, and I was very fortunate to get that job. And I did that for about a year. And then a friend of mine who had gone into television meteorology down in Atlanta told me about this, uh, this network that was being created that was all weather all the time. <clears throat> and I thought to myself, you know, I'm kind of behind the eight ball and behind the curve as far as uh, developing my on-air presence. I need reps. And where better to get reps than someplace that's going to talk weather 24 hours a day? So I applied for a job at the Weather Channel, and I was one of the original on-camera meteorologists there. Um, and, and that started in the spring of 82 and I lasted a year and a half. I couldn't stand the heat in Atlanta. I had to get out. It was too hot. (laughs) Back up to new England. Yeah. I went back to Albany, New York actually. And, um, um, you know, I took, uh, in the summer of 83, I took vacation from the weather channel and I had already started to talk to the NBC station up in Albany. And I, I actually negotiated the contract while I was in the hotel right behind the 18th hole at St. Andrews because I went over to play golf for a week in Scotland. I'd never done that before. <clears throat> and, um, and then when 
the following week, I was down at Royal Birkdale at the uh, British Open because I arranged the caddy for Larry at the Open. And I accepted the job from a phone booth in the parking lot of Royal Birkdale. And then I went back to Atlanta and gave my notice. And a few weeks later, I was back in the north where I was much happier. Well, clearly golf has uh, been a big part of your your life and your career uh, a long way. But, you know, I'm curious. So you went on and you, and you had a very successful career broadcasting and, and uh, creating your own weather services and such. Um, but... Looking back on your caddy days, I mean, do you miss, uh, you know, how often did you look back over over the years and, and did you, what was that like for you to kind of walk away from something so exciting and, and uh, different each week to, to something completely different? Well, I'd be lying if I didn't say I had a little uh, tinge of, of jealousy when I, you know, understand what these guys are getting paid to caddy now. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, now, mind you, I did very well. I, I worked, Larry wasn't a workhorse. He'd work. He'd play 26, 27 tournaments a year, which meant I had 25 or 26 weeks of vacation. Right. And he was very generous. I was well paid by Larry. And uh, um, I, 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 don't, I look back with fond memories. I don't regret anything, including leaving the tour after 1980. Uh, but the, the caddy years were just phenomenal. And, uh, you know, I, I still am in contact with Gosh, about 10 or 12 guys that I caddied with. We will be having another reunion at Congressional in October. Uh, for uh, It's part of a uh, an ALS fundraiser that uh, John Feinstein is the, the, the author, is the, is the chairman of this tournament. And um, we'll be mo- raising money in memory of Bruce Edwards, Tom Watson's longtime caddy, uh, at this ALS fundraiser in October, and we'll have the guys I caddied with. There'll be about 12 or 14 of us coming in from all over the world to spend a few days together and tell stories and play a little golf and stay up late at night and misbehave. Well, that's awesome. And what, what exactly is the name of that fundraiser, and do you have the dates and such? <clears throat> it's, it's October 14th, mm-hmm. and the name of it is The Bruce. Okay. And... Um, if you, if someone's interested in supporting the memory of Bruce Edwards and they would like to make a contribution of some sort, I'm sure that if you either Google the Bruce or you contact Congressional Country Club in Bethesda directly, uh, they will get you in touch with John Feinstein or, or someone on his staff to uh, accommodate that generous gesture. Wow. Well, that, that's, that's a cool thing and uh, definitely want to make sure everybody hears about that. You know, uh, one of the things I was curious about, since you're, you're actively uh, in the golf business now, um, we've worked together for a while. You've got a lot of high-profile clients that you provide uh, custom weather uh, services for. And so you see a lot of golf courses just from your work, not, not just from when you're out playing. But what, what has changed from the days when you were on the tour with Larry to today in terms of golf course conditioning and just general, the, the, the advancements in turf management uh, that you could describe for our listeners. Well, Curtis, clearly, first and foremost, you have to talk about green speed. Because in the 1970s, and remember, I wasn't putting on these greens. I was walking on them and reading them. But uh, in that decade, which comprised most of my time on the tour, if there was a, a place that got to nine feet, players were excited and a little, they had a little trepidation about going there. Like, oh my gosh, those greens are going to be so fast. When we went to Toledo to Inverness for the U.S. Open in 1979, 
and I, from what I remember, there was talk that, well, they have the same sort of grass there that they have at Oakmont and Marion and Wingfoot on the greens. So everybody went, oh, geez, this is going to be a horror show. And I think the greens might have gotten to nine and a half that week, maybe, maybe 10, maybe. Uh, wow. And they were the fastest things anyone's seen. Now, in, in 1979, when the, when the season ended in November, I went to uh, Australia for a month to caddy. Uh, and I caddied for uh, Fuzzy Zeller and Tom Kite, Jerry Pate, and, and uh, Johnny Miller, uh, <clears throat> and had a great time. But I caddied at Royal Melbourne, and Royal Melbourne was legendary the world over for perhaps the fastest greens on the planet. And they were probably 10 and a half, but, you know, Royal Melbourne is built on eight miles of sand. <laughs> so right, right. <laughs> they don't have any drainage issues there. But those greens were fast. It was the greens were fast at Inverness. They were fast when Jack opened up Muirfield in 1976. But fast was if they pushed it, they got near 10 feet. Nowadays, you know, if they're nine and a half, 10 feet, the players are up in arms about the substandard conditions. But the green yeah, makes right. the biggest difference between then and now. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. I, you know, I would, I would think that would be pretty straightforward. I mean, how about, um, things like bunker maintenance and, and, um, fairway firmness and other things that, uh, you know, some of us would say are different. I mean, you know, back then they clearly didn't have bunker liners and they weren't spending all this money on sands of importing them from four or five States away. Well, um, you're, you're on the money there. Uh, the bunkers were, um, much less consistent from week to week than what they are now. Now, in, in the late 90s and the first eight years of the 2000s, uh, I worked as a, a broadcaster for XM Sirius Radio on PGA Tour Network, and I was one of the rovers on the golf course. So I got to see the sand, um, again, not hitting a shot out of it, but I got to see the sand from week to week, and it was much more consistent then and is now than what I remembered back in the 70s. So when you showed up at a new tournament, you were treated to, a, at times, a vastly different set of bunkers in terms of the sand consistency than what you had a week before. Nowadays, uh, that's not a flat line, but it it doesn't have an, as many peaks and valleys as term, in terms of softness and moisture and all the other factors because, as I understand it, the, the, the tour sources their sand from about three different quarries, and that's about it, and they put it under a microscope, and they want to make sure the individual particles are con consistent shape and uh, the bunkers are one thing. And then the other thing, and, and you know more about this than I do, all these topics you know more than I do, but I kind of remember that the, in general, the tour stops in the 1970s had a center line irrigation system that didn't necessarily do much for the rough. And I, you know, right. there weren't many tournaments where you were coming into town going, oh gosh, we know the rough's going to be bad here. Nowadays, right. it can be every week because the uh, irrigation systems have far more reach. So I think that's another difference that's worth noting. If you hit it in the rough back in the 1970s, you didn't necessarily get penalized. Yeah, no doubt about it. You know, I think the case that, that I'm trying to make or, or I think should be made is that as the general uh, golf media speaks about all the advancements in technology, the ball, the club, and the, uh, the fitness of the athletes, all very relevant all worth having the discussion about, but they never talk about the turf advancements. I mean, you know, the, the genetic breeding that has gone on in, in the creeping bent grass world, uh, the 
genetic breeding that's gone on in the ultra dwarf Bermuda world. I mean, ultra dwarf Bermuda grasses are now very um, high level putting surfaces all over and being pl- major championships mm-hmm. are being played on. Um, you know, irrigation systems, water conservation and, and the ability to grow incredible stands of turf um, at a broader scale across a property like you just described. Um engineering and drainage and and all these things that go into the everyday uh, mindset and scope of, a, of today's superintendent certainly has had an influence on where the game is today and i just think it's worth including in that discussion about the ball and everything else because when you start talking about well, what we need to do for golf and how you know what's what's golf's future and everybody's talking about play nine shorter courses and roll the ball back various different things you know, um, you got to talk about the course and how it's being maintained and what type of an investment you're putting in, what it costs to, to carry that forward, what's the best practices to do so. So I'll end the rant there. But, you know, I think that, uh, you know, at 19, the 1970s into 80s to today are two completely different eras, obviously, but very, very vastly different in terms of turf management. And, and there's one other, <clears throat> I'm going to make a connection between club technology and agronomics in the 1970s there wasn't as much rough as i recall and at times it would get kind of stressed out and a little wispy and and when rough gets like that uh you can get some nuclear flyers especially with the irons that were in bags in the 1970s and that that was something that players really had to be concerned with then that doesn't necessarily cause them as much consternation today. So uh, maybe there wasn't, and I don't believe there was nearly the gnarly, lush, rough that you see on television today or see in person if you go out to a tour event. But uh, if you had to hit it out of that light rough with a 1970s iron, you were just saying a quiet prayer for the people standing in the back of the green that they might have (laughs) quick twitch muscles so they can get out of the way. Right, I, saw, right. I saw Gary McCord one year in Houston um, at the, uh, it wasn't Champions, the Woodlands. Thank you. <laughs> and uh, we, we were out there on a, on a uh, Tuesday in a practice round with Gary McCord, and he's got a new set of irons. And he stands up on this par four, and he's got about 195 yards to the, to the hole. And the, some of the, uh, the, the workers are putting together the scaffolding in the back of the green that's going to house the camera and the announcer at number 15 or number 16, whatever hole it was. And this thing, this yeah. thing's 15 yards behind the back edge of the green, and it's 20 feet off the ground where these guys are standing on, on the boards that they've put on the scaffolding. And McCord yeah. hits this five iron out of the first cut of the rough, and it went through the broadcasting booth and it was just flattening out and, and if it had hit either one of the guys that were laying down the cables up there it might have killed them and, and he oh, says oh man. get me and get me blank company on the line i got a problem and he and he had to, <laughs> he had to switch out the irons because there was something about the way those grooves were cut he had no control whatsoever and that, that's the worst flyer I ever saw in my life. When that ball finally came down, it had to go 230 yards in the wow. air. Maybe longer. Oh, man. But anyway, uh, that was a challenge back then that isn't necessarily so much of a challenge today. Yeah. 
Well, I, I man, I, I mean, we could we could go on forever about the the things that you saw and and the things uh, out there on the golf course would be amazing um, for everybody to hear. And, and we're definitely going to have to have you back on to do that. But you've got a pretty special thing coming up here um, in the next couple weeks, don't you? I do, I do. Um, Larry and I, Larry Nelson and I, have remained friends for almost forty years since I stopped caddying for him. And he was the best man at my wedding, and uh, uh, I've been lucky enough to see him every couple of years, uh, even in his Champions Tour career, uh, when he's come up to, to Binghamton, New York. Uh, I caddied for him about 16 years ago in Boston uh, at Neshotic Country Club uh, in a uh, uh, senior tour event, as it was called then. Uh, and, and I figured that was the end. You know, that's the end of my caddying career. But about a month ago, I got a text from Larry saying, I'm thinking that the Dick Sporting Goods event in Binghamton, in Endicott actually, uh, might be my last one. Would you like to caddy for me? And I jumped at the chance. I absolutely jumped at the chance. So next week yeah. I'll be putting on the sneakers, and now I can wear shorts, which is kind of cool, and picking up the bag, and uh, perhaps for the last time in Larry's career, uh, perhaps, uh, but that was his suggestion, uh, we're going to walk the fairways together at Enjoy and uh, – uh, it'll be bittersweet. It'll be exciting for me to get a chance to spend that much time with Larry and just chat about everything in the world for f- four straight days on the golf course and have a couple of dinners with him. Uh, but it'll be melancholy. Walking that last hole is going to be difficult for me. Now, Larry's not a sentimental old fool like I am. Uh, but <laughs> it's probably going to rattle me more if that's his last hole than it will rattle him. But I'm very, very much looking forward to uh, caddying one more time uh, at uh, the Dick Sporting Good ev- Goods event, uh, I guess it's August 16th through the 18th with the Pro-Am round yeah. on the 15th. It's it's going to be a lot of fun. Well, that's awesome. I and mean, what a special thing for, for the two of you guys. And so the, the Dick Sporting Good Open is August 16th through the 18th at Enjoy Golf Club in Endicott, New York, which was originally uh, opened in 1927 and has remained a, a committed club to um, – public access golf mm-hmm. and you you've clearly been there a lot so you know the golf course pretty well um it was re redone in 98 and 99 by mike herdzan and i guess they've had some real bad flooding over the years um 2011 i think was was a second time that it had happened to him but um you know they're <laughs> <laughs> at least right so uh the superintendent obviously has a hands full it's not an easy part of the world to grow grass in Anthony Chapman is the golf course superintendent there. And so, Herb, in this swan song for you and Larry, what, what is your strategy in terms of uh, being his caddy to help him win? Uh, show up, keep up, and shut up. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I love it. I love it. No, I, I, you know, if he wants me to do the yardage book, I can certainly do that because I do my own in competition. Uh, if he wants me to read a green, he's got to understand I have 66-year-old eyes now. Uh, so, But I'll, I'll help him any way that he wants. And um, I'll do a good job of raking the bunkers. And I'll replace all the divots. I mean, that stuff is still ingrained in me after all those years as a caddy. you got to take care of the golf course first and foremost. Because, by the way, if you don't, if you happen to forget to rake a bunker and the guy behind the group behind you hits it in there, Larry can get fined. And I don't think that's the way I want to go out. So... Yeah, right, right. You know, now that you're in in the um, the greenkeeping business as a as a uh, 
with Grassroots Weather, your company, and you provide custom weather reports and services to uh, golf course superintendents uh, all over the country. Uh, um, you have a uh, hundred clients or so. Is that right? Yeah, rough, roughly a hundred. Yes, in, in a triangle from Chicago to Charlotte, uh, up to Portland, Maine. Okay, so uh, you know now that you've been doing that, uh, and you're and you're so in tune with that world, um, do you think that will or have you done any caddying since you've been in that world? And it, has it changed your perspective walking the fairways as a caddy? Not necessarily as a caddy, uh, Curtis, but as a competitor, uh, I, my eyes are wide open to stuff that I just took for granted or ignored in the past. And I, I, when I go to a course I haven't played before or haven't played it in a while, I'm, you know, tuned in to seeing, okay, are they, are they triplexing the greens? Are they hand mode? What are they doing with the approaches? Uh, what's the rough like? Where's the irrigation system? All these things that, that I've learned about by attending turf conferences and going to the seminars, I start looking for these things. And I even look for diseases right. uh, on golf courses now. And I can identify just enough of them to be dangerous. You know? <laughs> cool. But, it, 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 you know, really, it, it, it's, a, uh, it's a wonderful relationship I've had with the superintendents with whom I work because – I'd say about 85% of the superintendents have, an, have a sincere interest in learning more about why the weather does what it does. 15% of them don't give a damn. They want to know what and when, spare me the details. And that's fine. I mean, that's the way some of them operate. But um, I have a sincere interest in learning more about how those guys do the job that they do on golf courses. And I have learned an abundance of things from uh, working with these gentlemen, uh, attending the conferences, having a beer with them and asking them about the, you know, wh- how they treat the, the approaches the same way they do the greens and, and how much I like that because I like to play the ball down and hit knockdown shots a lot. And I, I really appreciate clubs that, that give that treatment to the approaches because you get a much more consistent bounce if you're trying to uh, play the ball low and on the ground somewhat. So uh, it's been an education for me. And uh, it's been an education I've been told by a goodly percentage of my clients. And, and that's the way a relationship should be. It should uh, benefit both parties. And this one certainly has, I think. Oh, from my standpoint, I have benefited a lot. Well, I know, I know as a superintendent, I was part of that 85% that loved uh, the education factor of being a client of yours. And uh, I was you. a client for so long because you're really, really good at what you do. And, you know, I think, you know, we live and die by the weather. That's a bit dramatic, but, you know, as a golf course superintendent, you know, you can annoy your family till, till no end staring at, at your phone and (laughs) worrying about it. You know, you're, you're going to head in, there's going to be a storm. I got to get up earlier than I thought. And, you know, that's just the life of a superintendent and uh, your services really did um, provide a much better, ability to plan. And, um, you know, there was always last minute stuff that happened and, and you addressed that as well, but it was really beneficial to me. And, um, I certainly learned a lot too. So oh, thank you. Thank you. It, what I'm sure you've looked at the weather for the Dick sporting good open. So, uh, you know, are you going to have some good weather for the event? Well, I'll tell you what, I think I'm going to catch a break because there's going to be, um, a, relatively relatively cool air mass covering the uh, eastern part of the country for a good part of that week it is august it's going to be warm but uh it is not going to be excessively warm and it's not going to be excessively humid and man nobody's happier about that than i am 
<laughs> I right. got news for you. I don't. I don't want a sweatshop uh, environment for me carrying a bag right about now. That that wouldn't be a good combination. <laughs> right. Right. It looks pretty good. Yeah. Well, listen, Herb, we wish you the best out there with Larry. We wish Larry the best and uh, really appreciate you taking time to be with us on the course reports. I hope the first of many and, um, you know, best of luck uh, for the rest of your season as well uh, to you and all your clients. And uh, we look forward to following up with you again soon. That's great. I really have had a wonderful time talking with you, Curtis. I always do, whether it's on the phone or email, uh, but this has been a a treat. And uh, if anyone is really interested in what I do and, uh, particularly if they're in that triangle between Charlotte, uh, Chicago, and, and Maine. Uh, if you go to grassrootswx.com, you can learn more about my service, and there's some contact information there. And if you have any questions, I offer everybody 60 days for free to see whether or not I know what the heck I'm talking about, and uh, I'd be willing to uh, answer any questions and take some people on on a trial basis if they're interested in it. So there's the self-serving plug. Yeah, good. Yeah, it, it's over. So. Yeah. <laughs> well, I hope they do. I hope they check it out. And uh, again, thank you, Herb. We'll be talking to you again soon. Curtis, this was a blast. Let's do it again. All right, partner. Wow, that was some great perspective from Herb Stevens. A totally different viewpoint for us here at the Course Reports from a PGA Tour caddy, a veteran at that back in the day when nine on the stint meter was fast. Well, I tell you what, times have changed. But we appreciate you tuning in to the Course Reports. We've got a great video coming your way this weekend. Brand new edition of the Course Reports on site. Please share it with your friends and tell everybody to subscribe. We've got a great fall lineup of podcasts coming your way. Please continue to share it with your friends and family and everybody that loves golf. The more people that get to learn about what we're talking about, the better the game will be. We believe that. We know you do too. Again, thanks for tuning in. Talk to you next week. This episode is brought to you by Dave Thompson's Organic Healthy Grow and Healthy Grow Professional Brand Fertilizers. It's sustainable. It's organic. It's best in class. Find it at a retailer near you or online at healthygrow.com slash green. The way it's made matters. Healthygrow.com slash green.